Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Ah, Paris, the city of light, the city of love, and the city of unnecessary challenges of violence in the name of romance. That's what it was like in France in the 18th and 19th centuries. In those days, if someone offended you, or you were competing for the love of a particular woman, you could challenge the other person to a duel. Before the late 18th century, swords were the weapon of choice. In 1841's The History of Dueling, the author outlined dozens of rules to be followed for a successful duel. For example, Rule 43 dictated what moves a fighter could make with a sword, stating, Combatants are allowed to raise themselves, to stoop, to vault to the right or to the left, and to turn around each other. Rule 44 allowed combat to stop if one party declared themselves wounded, or if one of the witnesses noticed that someone had been hurt. And just how common was it? Well, King Louis XIII pardoned more than 8,000 people for committing murder during a duel. So, yeah, a lot. Pistols only made the practice more deadly, too. A puncture or a cut from a blade was not necessarily a death sentence back then, but a bullet in a crucial part of the body could be the end of someone immediately, or worse, days later. Alexander Hamilton famously died 31 hours after being shot by Aaron Burr in 1804. Dueling was an act that was both barbaric and pointless, yet some people saw no other way to settle their differences, especially two Frenchmen in the early 19th century who really escalated the situation. Their duel took place only four years after Hamilton's fateful trip to Weehawken, New Jersey. A young dancer with the Paris opera known as Mademoiselle Tiravette had been in a relationship with one Monsieur du Grand Pré. It seemed like things were going pretty well for them, but it seems that she was also seeing Monsieur Le Pique on the side. So when Grand Prix found out that he was not the only person in his beloved's life, he did what all men in his situation did in 1808 France. He challenged the other man to a duel. Of course, these were macho, testosterone-fueled gents who refused to settle for a standoff with pistols in the middle of a field. No, in order to win the heart and hand of Mademoiselle Tiravit, they needed to face off in a spectacular way, high above the ground, in hot air balloons. They met on May 3rd, still in the middle of a field, mind you, but on this occasion they stood by as two large balloons were heated up and inflated. Each man had also brought a second, a witness to be responsible for making sure that the duel was carried out as expected. Now, in a normal duel, the second would walk away afterward and go home to their families. 
In this instance, however, each second had resigned himself to dying in the event the other balloon's occupants succeeded, because the goal here was not for the duelers to shoot one another. Grand Prix and the Peak, each man armed with the blunderbuss, would fly high into the air with their seconds and fire at their opponent's balloon. Whoever managed to pop the other man's balloon would receive Mademoiselle Tirovitz's hand. The other? Well, he and his second would plummet to their deaths below. A large crowd gathered on the morning of the event, excited to watch four grown men get into a couple of hot air balloons and shoot each other down rather than talk through their feelings like adults. They climbed inside, and each balloon began to rise. Up, up, up they went to a half mile over the crowd. When they reached the appropriate height, both men got into position. Le Peak shot first. He fired wide and missed Grand Prix's balloon entirely. Grand Prix returned fire, and it was a success. He managed to shoot a hole in Le Peak's balloon, sending it careening into a terrace below. Le Peak and his second were killed instantly in the crash, while Grand Prix climbed even higher in triumph before floating down gently to the woman below that he loved. The whole ordeal was over quickly, but it left a lasting impression on dueling history, and it reminds us today of that age-old cliché. What goes up must come down. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
Historians and scholars have spent decades working with the world's most mysterious documents and artifacts. For example, there's the Voynich Manuscript, an illustrated codex written during the 15th century in an unknown language. It first showed up in 1912 and was believed to have been decoded as recently as 2017. However, those translations were quickly debunked, and so the manuscript is still considered uncracked. Then there's also the Shugborough Inscription, a ten-letter sequence carved into a monument in England. And although the inscription has existed since the mid-1700s, we are no closer to understanding its meaning than we were two and a half centuries ago. But one particular historical object didn't require extensive study to understand. In fact, researchers seem to have figured out exactly what it was pretty quickly. Or so they thought. It was called the Shapira Scroll, named for the man who revealed it to the world, Moses Wilhelm Shapira. He was born in 1830 in what is now Ukraine and worked as an antiques dealer in Jerusalem. Shapira first brought the scroll to Paul Schroeder, a German scholar and interpreter who specialized in Semitic languages. Schroeder asked about its origins, to which Shapira replied that it had been discovered in a cave near the Dead Sea. However, when University of Berlin professor Hermann Streck asked Shapira about the scroll's provenance, he was told a fantastical story about how a group of people had accidentally found them rolled up in a bundle of rugs in a mountain cave. In fact, depending on who he was talking to, Shapira told a different story. So, what was the scroll he found? Well, it wasn't really a scroll at all, in that it wasn't a long roll of paper. Instead, the Shapira scroll was comprised of 15 separate strips of leather, each with a modified Bible verse from the book of Deuteronomy written across them. What's more, the language written on each of the strips was Paleo-Hebrew, an older version of the Hebrew language found on stone walls and tablets beginning in the 13th century BCE. According to Shapira, his fragments had been created before the fall of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. In other words, they were the oldest known biblical documentation in existence. He sent facsimiles of the strips all over Germany to have them authenticated. Historians, scholars, and librarians studied them closely. The Royal Library of Berlin wanted to purchase the originals so that they could be examined by German students. But Shapira had no interest in having his scroll put under the microscope for handfuls of students to study. Instead, he suggested that the British Museum buy the whole collection for one million pounds. The public was enthralled and flocked to the museum to see two of the scrolls in person. A Bible scholar named Christian David Ginsberg took possession of the remaining fragments to analyze them. It took him a month, but when he was done, Ginsberg came to a very important conclusion. They were forgeries. Now, Shapira wasn't a stranger to fake documents and antiquities. In 1870, he had tried fooling buyers with fabricated artifacts from the ancient Moabite culture. Why anyone entertained his latest attempt was a mystery, but many did, especially the public, who were captivated by the existence of the strips. According to Ginsberg, it appeared that Shapira had cut up a Yemenite Torah scroll. These scrolls were very old, possibly hundreds of years, and quite valuable. Shapira had sold Yemenite scrolls to the British Museum before, and it was believed that he had cut strips from the empty bottom margin to create his own biblical relics. Of course, Shapira wrote a letter to Ginsburg in which he declared his innocence in the whole ordeal. He believed the scroll was authentic, but claimed that if it was fake, someone else had been responsible for its creation and had duped him. Shapira then traveled to Amsterdam, where he sent another letter, this time to Edward Augustus Bond, 
Bond was the primary librarian for the British Museum, and Shapira begged him to check the scrolls again. Sadly, he never got his answer. Six months later, he took his own life. The Shapira scrolls went up for auction a few years afterward, selling for a measly 10 pounds. After 1889, no one saw them again. Interest in the artifacts all but disappeared. Until the mid-1900s. Between 1947 and 1956, the first seven Dead Sea Scrolls were found in caves alongside the Dead Sea. Discoveries that seemed eerily similar to what Moses Shapira used to say about his leather fragments. Scholars to this day are divided on the true provenance of the Shapira scroll, with some claiming that it could have been legitimate, while others maintain the original conclusion that the scroll was a forgery. Moses Shapira might have been responsible for one of the greatest historical discoveries ever recorded, but his previous deceptions had ruined his chances for success. Heartbreaking for sure, but also oh so curious. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.